Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is August 3rd. In 1958, the U.S. nuclear submarine Nautilus accomplished the first undersea voyage to the geographic North Pole. The world's first nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, dived at Point Barrow, Alaska, and traveled nearly 1,000 miles under the Arctic ice cap to reach the top of the world. It then steamed onto Iceland, pioneering a new and shorter route from the Pacific to the Atlantic and Europe. The USS Nautilus was constructed over the direction of U.S. Navy Captain Hyman G. Rickover, a brilliant Russian-born engineer who joined the U.S. Atomic Program in 1946. In 1947, he was put in charge of the Navy's nuclear propulsion program and began work on an atomic submarine. Regarded as a fanatic by his detractors, Rickover succeeded in developing and delivering the world's first nuclear submarine years ahead of schedule. In 1952, the Nautilus's keel was laid by President Harry S. Truman, and January 21, 1954, First Lady Mamie Eisenhower broke a bottle of champagne across its bow as it was launched into the Thames River at Groton, Connecticut. Commissioned on September 30, 1954, it ran under nuclear power on the morning of January 17, 1955. Much larger than the diesel-electric submarines that preceded it, the Nautilus stretched 319 feet and displaced 3,180 tons. It could remain submerged for almost unlimited periods because its atomic engine needed no air and only very small quantity of nuclear fuel. The uranium-powered nuclear reactor produced steam that drove propulsion turbines, allowing the Nautilus to travel underwater at speeds in excess of 20 knots. In its early years of service, the USS Nautilus broke numerous submarine travel records and on July 23, 1958, departed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on Operation Northwest Passage, the first crossing of the North Pole by submarine. There were 116 men aboard for this historic voyage, including Commander William R. Anderson, 111 officers and crew, and four civilian scientists. The Nautilus steamed north through point the Bering Strait and did not surface until it reached Point Barrow, Alaska, in the Beaufort Sea, though it did send its periscope up once off Diomedes Islands between Alaska and Siberia to check for radar bearings. On August 1st, the submarine left the north coast of Alaska and dove under the Arctic ice cap. The submarine traveled at a depth of about 500 feet, and the ice cap above varied in thickness from 10 to 50 feet, with the midnight sun of the Arctic shining in varying degrees through the blue ice. At 11.15 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on August 3, 1958, Commander Anderson announced to his crew, For the world, our country, and the Navy, the North Pole. The Nautilus passed under the geographic North Pole without pausing. The submarine next surfaced in the Greenland Sea between Spitsbergen and Greenland on August 5th. Two days later, it ended its historic journey at Iceland. For the, commander, or for the command during the historic journey, President Dwight D. Eisenhower decorated Anderson with a Legion of Merit. After a career spanning 25 years and almost 500,000 miles steamed, the Nautilus was decommissioned on March 3, 1980, designated a National Historic Landmark in 1982, the world's first nuclear submarine went on exhibit in 1986 as the historic ship Nautilus at the Submarine Force Museum in Groton, Connecticut. And 1978, the 11th Commonwealth Games were the first to adopt a name that did not specifically refer to the British Empire, held in Edmonton, Alberta, 
The event celebrated instead the diversity of the modern Commonwealth, an evolving community described by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as a voluntary association of friendly nations. The 1978 Commonwealth Games were staged by a more confident, unified Canada, still aglow with pride following the 1967 centennial celebrations. The theme of the opening ceremonies was Canada Welcomes the Commonwealth, and performances emphasized the nation's multicultural heritage. During the Games, cultural representatives from 25 Commonwealth countries joined over 400 Canadian artists in free exhibitions and performances throughout the city, an expansive festival program known as Festival 78. Closing ceremonies further underscore the diversity of the Commonwealth, as performers ranging from Samoan fire dancers to Caribbean steel drummers invited spectators to see themselves as part of a rich intercultural tapestry. Over 10,000 local volunteers won visitors over with their warm hospitality in Edmonton hosting nearly 1,500 athletes from 46 nations. Canada dominated the competition, winning the most overall medals with a total of 109, including 45 gold. Spectators were delighted when 15-year-old swimmer Carol Kimple, who had only competed at the national level once before, won gold medals for the 100-meter and 400-meter freestyle relay races. In athletics, Diane Jones-Kanawaski collected 4,768 points in the women's pentathlon, the highest score ever at a Commonwealth Games and the third highest in the history of the sport. Competing in the front of the hometown audience at a pool named after his late father, Edmonton swimmer Graham Smith, provided one of the most moving stories of the 1978 Commonwealth Games. A celebrated Canadian swimming coach, Don Smith, passed away after battling cancer in 1976, leaving his children to carry on his legacy. Graham had first dreamed of swimming competitively after participation in a father-son relay as a young child. Whenever his confidence faltered, his father had offered guidance and encouragement to keep pursuing his goals. While competing at the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal, the young swimmer wanted more than anything to win a gold medal for, before his ailing father passed away. Struggling to control his emotions, Graham won silver with the men's 4x100 meter medley relay team, but was unable to reach the Olympic podium in individual events. In 1978, Graham turned to the Commonwealth Games with a renewed sense of purpose, still determined to honor his father's mentorship and memory. His approach was now methodical, focused on executing each stroke of each race rather than dreaming of the end result. Swimming 10 races in 6 days, his success was nothing short of breathtaking. In front of elated crowds, Graham Smith demonstrated the power of balancing emotional inspiration with discipline and focus by winning 6 gold medals, a new Commonwealth record. And finally, in 1923, Massachusetts Governor Calvin Coolidge filled the vice presidential slot in Republican Warren G. Harding's 1920 run for the White House. Coolidge saw it shared in Harding's landslide victory and settled comfortably into the undemanding routine of his office. The vice president's life changed dramatically on the night of August 2, 1923, as he vacationed at the family farmhouse in Vermont. Coolidge went to bed early that evening and slept as the events that would propel him into the presidency unfolded. A continent away and unbeknownst to Coolidge, President Warren Harding lay mortally ill in a San Francisco hotel room. The president died in the early evening, but it took four hours for the news to reach the East Coast. A telegram announcing Harding's death was delivered to the farmhouse around 2.30 a.m., and Coolidge's father trudged upstairs to awake his son. A notary public, the elder Coolidge, administered the oath of office to his son by the light of a kerosene lamp in the parlor. On the night of August 2nd, 
1923, I was awakened by my father coming up the stairs calling my name. I noticed that his voice trembled. At the only times I had ever observed that before, when the death had visited our family, I knew that something of the gravest nature had occurred. He placed in my hands an official report and told me that President Harding had just passed away. My wife and I at once dressed. Before leaving the room, I knelt down with the same prayer with which I have since approached the altar of the church, asked God to bless the American people and give me power to serve them. My first thought was to express my sympathy for those who had been bereaved, and after that was done to attempt to reassure the country with the knowledge that I proposed no sweeping displacement of the men then in office and that there were to be no violent changes in the administration of affairs. As soon as I dispatched a telegram to Mrs. Harding, I therefore issued a short public statement declaratory of that purpose. Meantime, I had been examining the Constitution to determine what might be necessary for qualifying by taking the oath of office. It is not clear that any additional oath is required beyond what is taken by the vice president when he is sworn into office. It is the same form as is taken by the president. Having found this form in the Constitution, I had it set up on the typewriter, and the oath was administered by my father in his capacity as a notary public, an office he had held for a great many years. The oath was taken in what we always called the sitting room by the light of the kerosene lamp, which is the most modern form of lighting that had been reached that neighborhood. The Bible which belonged to my mother lay on the table at my hand. It was not officially used, but it was a practice in Vermont or Massachusetts to use a Bible in connection with the administration of an oath. Besides my father and myself, there was present my wife, Senator Dale, who happened to be stopping a few miles away, my stenographer, and my chauffeur. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Nautilus at the North Pole at History.com the 1978 Canada Commonwealth Games at canadasports150.ca and Calvin Coolidge sworn in as president at eyewitness2history.com. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana created by Kevin McLeod on incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.